Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. Dr. Steve Chin is an expert on dyscalculia. He has over 40 years experience of work and research in the field. He is now an independent consultant, researcher and author. Hello. Hello. Good to uh, be speaking with you, Dana. Yes, it's great. Uh, Could you explain to us what's dyscalculia? What is it? (laughs) Okay. It's kind of the new kid on the block. Dyslexia has been around a long time, which is a problem with language. Um, Dyscalculia, the problem with maths. It's kind of come to uh, education uh, recognition in the past 25, 30 years, and probably real awareness more recent than that, 10 or 15 years. When I started in the special needs field, which was back in 1981, we were talking about maths and dyslexia. Um, Now we've kind of separated the two in terms of labels, although um, the roots of dyscalculia tend to be right at the very, very start of maths. So just being able to see um, that four random objects are four uh, and to be able to call them four. That's a process called subitizing. Um, So it's at a very, very basic level. But maths is so developmental, everything builds on the stuff before. So these very early things, so from that subitizing, we go to counting in the right order. Counting Backwards is really difficult for a lot of these kids, really difficult. You'll find often they can't do the odd numbers counting as well as they can do the even number counting. They might not be able to do either. Um, And counting in tens, like 10, 20, 30, is usually okay. But if you're counting with 10 every time, and you start with 14, so you should go 24, 34. That's often a big challenge. And basic facts, addition facts like the doubles, two sixes, uh, seven plus seven, really tough, really tough. And multiplication tables, massively tough. But that applies to lots of other kids as well, actually. Okay, and how could we actually help a child with dyscalculia in a school environment? Okay, Um, lots of visual support. Um, Don't just rely on numbers uh, and symbols. So lots, lots of visuals that the kids relate to. The kids have got to relate to the visuals. Uh, Then it mustn't just be the teacher's pet. objects 
um, so that they've got a visual and the symbol and the word all at the same time. So it's sort of multi-sensory. Some kids actually need to touch the kit. Um, so as well as visuals, they might need materials such as um, counters, good chunky counters, because you don't want kids uh, who might have dyspraxia as well mm -hmm. to be handicapped. Things called Cuisinaire rods, base 10 blocks. There's some very good yeah. key materials that help mm -hmm. reinforce the concept. Yeah. And I like very much the idea of breaking down numbers. So what I learned from my students, and most of the stuff I know I learned from my students, is the easier numbers when it comes to understanding maths and facts are 1, 2, 5, 10, and then 20, 50, 100. And seeing like, for example, that 6 is 5 plus 1, 7 is 5 plus 2, and having the visual pattern for that, it helps to build and strengthen the number concepts. Another thing that's often forgotten is the need to go back, uh, all the time go back, and people tend not to go back far enough. Not necessarily for long, but to say, oh, do you remember that pattern we had for six? What did you see? Did you see five and one? And for nine, did you see ten and, and one missing, one less? So lots of reinforcement, lots of going back because they won't retain things. Um, another thing that I found very interesting, and it actually it's very old research, it's just not well known. More so it's been picked up lately. If when you learn something for the first time, you get it wrong, that's really a bad thing because the brain tends to think, okay, I got it. And then to put it right, the brain, that first entry to the brain is very dominant and very hard to get rid of and replace with the real correct thing. So lots and lots of practice, little bits, not great long practices, little snippets all the time. If it was my kid at home, I'd say to them, you know, Let's do a little bit, just a little bit right now and, and sort of two minutes. And then we move on and say, ready for another two minutes? So lots and lots of repetition. Uh -huh. And how do you get the kid who has, um, who doesn't believe in himself, who got it wrong at the beginning to believe that he can go on learning math? Yeah, I, I just, I find that incredibly sad. Um, and nothing upsets me more than kids who are upset and don't want to try anymore. Uh, and it's our responsibility as teachers to, to, to address that. You can't say to the kids, snap out of it. That would be obviously a crazy thing <laughs> to do. So mass anxiety is getting a lot of attention at the moment. Um, and that's not kind of recent. Mass anxiety has probably been around for a long, long time. Uh, and there were, there's been books written about it uh, 
40, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But just right now, there seems to be a little bit of uh, extra interest. And a lot of people are linking it to dyscalculia. A mass anxiety is, is terrible. It's international. Well, it's more of a Western thing than a, a, an Eastern culture thing. Um, although in Eastern cultures, because the uh, levels of expectation are so high, there's anxiety there as well. In the UK, mass anxiety is uh, fairly culturally acceptable. You know, as an adult, I could say, I'm not good at maths, don't like it, don't do much. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't really say, I don't like reading, I don't read, I'm not good at it. <laughs> um, so, um, one of the key issues is fear of negative evaluation. And I, I kind of like that very simple phrase. Mass is very judgmental. It's right or it's wrong. You know, if I ask a kid, what's seven plus eight? And they say 14. I can't say, oh, gee, I just love your answer. It's so you. It's so creative. It's wrong. <laughs> and we don't like being wrong. Uh, every time we're wrong, it's really bad uh, in terms of a learning experience. And we have to manage our classrooms to reduce that and to manage it when it does happen. With all the wondrous brain research that can go on these days, anxiety is not imagined. There's a bit of the brain that lights up in kids and it, when they're anxious about maths and it's the same bit of the brain that lights up when you're under threat of physical violence that's how real it is yeah and one of the consequences of maths anxiety is kids give up uh, and that's you know i get it wrong why should i keep trying what what's in it for me nothing and I've asked teachers now for, I don't know, 10, 15 years in my lectures, what age do enough kids give up on maths for you to notice? This is teachers. And the, the most regular answer is seven, seven wow. years old. And that, that's, so some give up earlier, some give up later. But that's so early. And it's when you give up, you don't try. And in a lot of my research on um, errors and kids getting stuff wrong, the most common error in kids of 8, 9, 10 onwards is the no answer. They look at the question, I can't do this, I'm not going to try. Then at least I'm not wrong. Yeah. And in your research, uh, did you research the connection between body-mind connection, like having you, a child jump in order for him to learn the counting or, you know, using his body to do angles or? No, I haven't done much of that. Um, Fawcett and Nicholson have done a little bit of that stuff. Angela Fawcett, Rod Nicholson. Did, they did a little bit at my school. Um, we asked the kids for permission and they, they, they enjoyed doing it. Um, I'm, I guess, more of a traditional teacher, and, and I kind of like the visual kinetic, uh, um, kinesthetic, sorry, visual kinesthetic connections. 
um, the, the chances are it will, it will help some kids, the jumping, the singing. But ultimately, because maths becomes quite a serious subject, I want to set the foundations for that when, when kids are very young. So the, the very, very earliest stuff I do with the kids, I'll be using that three years later, two years later. Uh, and I like this building on the neurological learning they've got already. So I'm not right good on, on the use of that sort of stuff. Um, so. <laughs> and how do teachers, I mean, do, do they take on board all your suggestions? Um, inevitably, the answer is some do. Um, Numicon, which is now owned by Oxford University Press, yeah. do a lot of stuff, a lot of kit, books, worksheets, using materials. They're, they're really big on that. And they're quite popular. They, they, they um, are quite in a lot of schools. So, so that's pretty good. What I'm more um, negative about is a lot of the curriculum designers are very traditional. Uh, and a lot of the education policy makers are very traditional. Um, you know, I, the number of people that have said to me, I learned my times tables, my parents learned their times tables, mm -hmm. my grandparents learned their times tables, why can't you? Which is uh, just about as illogical as you can get, because you don't tend to have genetic prepositions for these things. Um, so I don't think um, a lot of teachers are taught in the training how to look at kids who don't learn yeah. uh, from regular instruction. And I don't think there's enough acceptance in mainstream of teaching that works for this type of kid. There's a group in Boston, USA, uh, who I know and have worked with, with in technology terms, who talk about the outliers the kids on the extremes of the normal distribution and say really we mainstream teachers ought to be learning from what works with the outliers uh, and I just am so behind that it's untrue um, I was in mainstream for 14 years and I was a, meant to be a good teacher you know successful kids like me I did well got good results went into special needs and discovered, actually, I really wasn't a good teacher at all. I, I could teach kids who could learn. I couldn't teach kids who found learning difficult. And so over the past 30, 40 years, I've, I've got better, hopefully, at that. And I reckon that there's, I can't think of anything that I've learned from working with my special kids um, one of whom I saw last night, I haven't seen mm -hmm. him for 15 years and we got together. Um, I can't think of anything that wouldn't help so many kids who are considered regular. Um, it's good teaching. It's, it's just very, very good teaching. And it has to be 
because regular teaching doesn't work. So you need really, really good teaching. Exactly. And you created a kind of a curriculum, right? Well, I can't because the curriculum is the curriculum. Um, governments decide that. What I've done over the years is written quite a lot of books explaining how you can uh, teach uh, separate areas of maths in ways that are going to be more effective and in ways that will build. Because, uh, like, let me take a very um, simple example. Times tables are a nightmare for so many kids and adults. And one of the toughest times table facts is seven times eight equals 56. Now, if you just change that order and you say 56 equals seven times eight, that's already a hurdle for some kids. But then you've got five, six, seven, eight. And so that gives you a little bit of help in remembering but there's only one other fact that works, and that's 12 equals 3 times 4. So there's not much use, really, other than that one fact. And a lot of people faced with difficulties in teaching come up with solutions like that instead of solutions that teach maths, that help kids organise what they know to learn more. And a massive research study in America came up with just three key findings and that was one of them use what you know to work out what you don't know but you have to be shown how to do that so if i go back to my seven times eight and this is quite mathematical but it does teach you some maths if you know five eights and kids tend to know fives a 40 and two eights a 16 and most kids know twos and if you've got the working memory to deal with adding 40 and 16, you get your 56. And that's teaching you quite advanced maths. And you can use that later on when you're developing maths knowledge. And that sounds maybe a little fancy, but I use that. In, I had a specialist school um, for very, very, very dyslexic kids which I ran for 19 years, it won, it won Beacon Award from the, from the government, uh, let alone from the Independent Schools Organization. And one of the reasons, we have two reasons for getting that Beacon Award. One was our maths teaching, and the other one was our use of assistive technology, which was way ahead of its time. So I've tried, and I've been <laughs> there, I've used it, and it works um, because you've got to get around long-term memory problems. And the way you do that is teach kids how to work out stuff. Maths, one of the few subjects you can do that. And how do you get to succeed in GCSEs and higher levels of uh, math? Yep. Um, Funnily enough, uh, I had an email today um, from an incredibly supportive girlfriend of a 30-year-old guy who wants to become a paramedic and he's got to get maths. Uh -huh. 
and, and there's no messing. You, you've got to you've got to get it. You won't become a paramedic unless you're 100% successful. And really, the only way you're going to do that is to go right, right back. So with the GCSE maths, uh, and again with my school, we went up to GCSE level. We were getting 75, 80% C and above. Uh -huh. And the rest yeah. were almost always D's, very little below a D. With kids who were, as I say, in the first, second percentile of difficulty for dyslexia. So you've got to go back to the beginning because mass builds. So the, the GCSE um, syllabus, so if you want to do a long multiplication, uh, 41 times 72, Knowing how to work out seven times eight will help you understand that other question. So you've got to have the foundations. Uh, a lot of kids uh, with GCSE, if they've got a good long-term memory, uh, they'll get and working memory, they'll get by. Uh, they may pass the exam, but they'll forget everything within six months if they're mm -hmm. gone. <laughs> so a, a colleague's daughter did that very clever young woman got through a gcse thought that's the end of maths and then decided she wanted to do a psychology degree and the maths in the psychology degree wiped her out uh -huh. you've got uh, it sounds like i'm a real old-fashioned guy which in some respects i am <laughs> you've got <laughs> to have the understanding uh, which will help your memory um, it, it seems to me that a lot of kids with dyscalculia, their memory for mathematical information is just appallingly bad. And are there any tricks you give your students on how to improve their memory? <laughs> well, you might have guessed from the 7 eighths example that I'm not a great fan of tricks because you have to remember the trick. <laughs> and, uh, and the trick has to I want them to learn by understanding and uh, and that's more secure than tricks so there are a few tricks you can use but basically uh, I don't like them because they don't really help long-term memory and that's what's going to get you through maths um, so I, I kind of I've got a, a series of uh, video tutorials um, which are not a high price at all though really I, I, I just get so anxious about charging stuff but I have to live <laughs> and uh, so a lot of the stuff that goes out is hugely expensive this stuff is not and it shows it just shows you how I teach and video tutorials uh, as, as a medium are quite good because they don't criticise you you know, the teacher doesn't give you a funny look or, or tell you you're stupid. You know, the video tutorial is very passive. And when you get fed up, you can stop it, pause it. You can control your learning. Um, so uh, they're quite a good support medium. I quite like those. But I prefer those to the tricks because, you know, I, I bought a book once just because I, I collect maths books, you can see behind me. Um, and it was about times tables. Uh, and so it's this massively thick 
book just for Times Table Facts. And it was like an, a, a large novel. And you think, the amount of work to cope with the stuff in that book is ridiculous. It's not a trick. It's, it's just a huge amount to learn. And a lot of the stuff put to music is, will help, everything will help someone. But equally, everything will not help everyone. Um, so some of the music stuff's okay, um, and that can help. Music's quite a powerful medium. But because maths develops and develops and develops, it, like algebra, which you're gonna need for GCSE, if you don't understand arithmetic, you'll never be able to do algebra because they're just linked. You know, I'm sorry I can't give you um, more cheerful or swift methods because what people want is a quick cure. How does that work? There ain't one. No. And about like, geometry, did you find that a lot of the students who were struggling had a problem with spatial awareness? Um. Okay, that's a really good question. Um, no, it, it, well, now let's let's answer that properly. The kids I had were dyslexic, and almost all of them had some difficulty with maths, d- different levels, but almost all of them, because a lot about learning maths requires the same skills, such as working memory, that uh, reading and spelling does. Um, so, if I had a kid who was dyslexic and dyspraxic, that would be a real challenge. My dyslexics and dyscalculics who were not dyspraxic could often pick up marks on the shape and space because it was asking different skills, sub-skills from them than the pure number and algebra stuff. So shape and space is a refuge for some kids, depending on their profile of their specific difficulties. But I worked in the States for 18 months, and one of the guys I worked with, PhD, very dyslexic, very, very, very clever man. But you know, like you can draw a cube on a page and it looks like a cube, Mm -hmm. if you know what you're doing, yeah? You can kind of do two squares and join them. Do you you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. He couldn't do that. Incredibly, incredibly intelligent man, but he couldn't do that. And that's kind of one of the deals with with learning difficulties. You think, well, why can't he do that? What's wrong with him? Which, of course, (laughs) he didn't think. Um, so a lot of dyspraxic kids don't do so well on um, the the graphs, um, and there are problems often with with graphs and tables in tracking across and down, and you can use L-shaped pieces of card to help with that. So that that's kind of a trick I do like, um, but um, you, the shape and space stuff is. There is, there's harder to deal with that because it's less um, less building than you get in the number side. Um, and so what you have to try and do 
is to strengthen the other sides because the pass mark for GCSE is not enormous and there's a lot of stuff you can get wrong, which is, I'm a teacher saying this, this is awful. Um, so you don't have to be good at everything to get your pass. And as a pragmatic statement. And as you were teaching in the States, did you find that vision therapy was helping some of the kids to understand math concepts? Yeah, a little bit. We, we had a, a woman uh, at a conference we ran, uh, and uh, actually I found her not, not right good. Uh, I, I found her um, quite worrying. Um, I worked uh, in in the UK um, with a guy called Keith Holland, oh. who was on the visual side, who sadly died really quite young. Yeah, we go to Keith uh, Holland. We still go there to Cheltenham. Yeah, too. Well, his wife Claire's yes. still there. <laughs> and I had, um, as you know, a daughter with Prader-Willi yes. syndrome, and uh, we, we, we used Keith and Claire. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm not I'm careful with Erlen syndrome because a lot of people get very exercised by that and agitated but I I have no problem with colored overlays colored acetates no problem at all and I think for some people it helps massively and in my lectures all of my overheads they use colored font and I get kind of irritated with specialists who use black font on white mm -hmm. because it's no big deal, you know, and and all sorts of things. I mean, one of the most basic things is, again, learning, because a lot of stuff wasn't around in the 80s when I was trying to teach. You watch kids copying from a board or a book and their short-term memories are not good. It's a very common situation. And so they can only hold one or two things. So they look at the board or the book, remember the two things, go to their exercise book, write the two things down. And they have to go back to the board and find where they were. That's so hard. Um, and anything, I'm just a pragmatist, anything that can help is great. So I have colored overlays in my school lying around um, they're very, very low cost. Um, the, um, I'm not doing a commercial, um, but there's a guy who specializes in providing this stuff. And one of my teachers actually helped design one of the colored overlay uh, structures mm -hmm. that he, he sold. So, yeah, I, I think, um, think color's great. And, and if I'm using... Um, um, materials like Dean's blocks, I will use colors um, to help kids identify the particular shape, to help recognize and know what it is. You just have to be careful that they don't get over-reliant on the color. You know? yeah, they have to be able to recognize the shape. Yeah. You have to get them to that stage as well. Uh -huh. As you mentioned, the um, Dean's blocks, did you find that, uh, or is there any research saying that um, application or iPads are not so recommended for use in comparison to, you know, traditional uh, teaching? 
iPads, did you say? Yeah. Um, I've not seen anything uh, at all on that. Uh, and I, I'd be kind of surprised if um, iPads and... and I can't surprise if they didn't help. Like everything, depends what's on them. You know, they're only a tool and what's on the screen. But for um, my school, which I mentioned, got awards and the award for the use of um, technology. I sent my key member of staff out to Boston. And I think we were the first school in the UK to have speech output mm -hmm. from the computer and the first to have speech recognition. Um, and they work, <laughs> you know, for some kids. I mean, if, if you get uh, speech recognition, you still got to plan your essay. You know, it doesn't, doesn't do everything for you. Uh, and I think sometimes people get agitated by this, you know, it's not fair, it's not fair. But a kid's still got to think through still got a plan they've still got to come up with the original idea you're not replacing their intelligence you're just enabling their intelligence and um so I, i'm actually very keen on on, on the technology <laughs> and steve how can people find your website how can they contact you oh okay well um chin <laughs> is actually an english name um, I've worked a lot in Asia, and, I, and it really confuses <laughs> a lot of my Asian friends. Uh, and, uh, but he has two ends, and that extra N makes all the difference. <laughs> so if you Google Steve Chin with two ends, my stuff comes up really quickly. If you forget the second N, be prepared to get a lot of stuff on your screen. <laughs> it's nothing to do with what I do. Um, so Steve Chin is, is the way to go. My um, Steve Chin, my personal website, is just being um, redesigned because I'm sort of edging towards retirement. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is put a lot of information on there. Now, free information uh, as my sort of retirement uh, gift. And the other site with, with the video tutorials, which the Steve Chin site would guide you towards is just called maths explained because we're english we put an s on maths <laughs> americans just called it maths you know uh -huh. and um, you do you print all the the work from your own computer or do you get it sent by post um it's it's all online um so all the tutorials are online there's no once you pay that's it there's no annual subscription nothing schools can buy it and use it they don't have to have a site license like i say i'm just my, my school was relatively low cost for a special school oh. <laughs> i want to get as many folk in as i can um and the mass explain website has um specially designed especially designed number-wise, not, not in terms of looking pretty, worksheets, which you just download. Um, and you can download them as often as you want to. So it's, um, I try to make it all as, as straightforward and uh, as sensible as I possibly can. And it is, it's just based on research, 
because I look at other people's research and see there's some very wonderful people around in this world and um, uh, people I, I, I know from travels. So uh, Connie Ho in Hong Kong, David Geary in the USA and Dowker in the UK. There's just some amazingly good people. You don't have to do all the research yourself. You can uh, you can share. Oh, great. <laughs> Looking forward to checking and ordering all the exercises. <laughs> oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Sensory Change Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. For more information on sensory input and ideas, visit danalatta.com. Join our community this month to get a free seven-day online course packed with practical sensory activities and strategies.